Uh, so that, that's happening. Good Friday services, Easter services. And as this is happening, can I just ask you uh, something? Would you be bold enough to invite a friend to the Easter weekend, uh, to Good Friday services, Way of the Cross? Um, you know, a, a life can be so radically transformed uh, by, by, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the power of an invitation, as scary as it, as it, can, it can feel sometimes, an invitation can change life. Think about your story. Think about who invite, who, think about who shared Christ with you. You have access to such good news and such an abundant life in Christ. And we want to see our, our entire city, this Willamette Valley region, rejoicing in who Jesus Christ is. So would you extend that, that invitation? We're going to be sharing the gospel pretty clearly uh, that weekend, giving people a chance to respond. Um, and so I want you to know that. Once you know that the, the, the times on Sunday have changed, there's an 11.30 service. And I'll, I'll just be honest with you, the 9, 10, 15, and 11, those are going to be packed. The 7.45, 7, if Jesus were here, that's the service he'd come to. So if, if you are just wondering which way, I'm just trying to give you a heads up that, that the 745, the, the, the three, they're going to be pretty packed. I mean, our, actually, our attendance doubles during, on Easter. We're grateful for that. So um, if Saturday night would be a service you could go to, that would be great. Somewhere around the world is Easter on Saturday night. I know sometimes it can feel kind of weird celebrating Easter on Saturday night. But um, if you come to the 1130 service, that's, spent, that's fine. No problem with that. Just want you to know it's going to be pretty full. Um, so note those times and be praying about who you can invite. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, go to Mark chapter 9. We're going to continue in our series called Live It. Um, and uh, we're going to pick it up in Mark 9. And you, you may be wondering, if you've been here the last couple weeks, uh, you thought we were farther along in this, uh, this series. Um, and, and we were. we were. We're going back. Going back to Mark 9. The reason for that is, remember the, uh, the snowpocalypse, the snowmageddon, what do you want to call it, the event in February uh, well, we were, we, we were getting, Mark, I worked so hard to write a sermon for Mark 9 and never gave to, got a chance to give it. So here we go. Uh, it's, it's an open weekend because we didn't have Bible studies due to spring break. So um, I'm going to kind of go back, pick up Mark 9, and we'll pick it up next week, uh, you know, right where we left off last week, where Susan left off last week. Uh, but I want to talk about the, the story of the Mount of Transfiguration today and, and get into that and what's going on there. And to begin, I'm just going to throw a picture of a bird up on the screen here. Now, if you look in that picture, you may be wondering, that doesn't look like a bird. It, it actually is. It's a stereogram. Anyone seen these stereograms before? Like this, okay, so several of you have. There, it's just like this, this. It's an optical illusion. It's, it's these colors that if you look at it the right way, kind of like in those, those kids' books that you, you open the page and there's folded papers and this image pops, this, this, this 3D image pops up. Stereograms accomplish the same thing. If you look at them, if you cross your eyes just the right way, you'll, you'll, you will see a 3D image of a bird pop out. Now, my kids had these books when they were younger, and they would like to look at them when you know, they're going to bed, looking at all the pictures, and you know, they'd say to me, like, oh, look at the bird, Dad, look at the dolphins, look at the elephant. And I, I remember just looking at this patchwork of colors and going, I, I don't see it. And so my kids would try and help me and say, now here's the trick, Dad. Take the book, put it, touch your nose to the page, and slowly pull it out. Now, cross your eyes, and, and then it'll just sort of, it'll come. And I remember being so frustrated because I could never see the dolphins or the elephants or the palm trees or whatever was on the page. And some of you are, like, frustrated because you can't see the bird. And uh, one, in fact, one time, one of my daughters told me, Dad, there must be something wrong with your brain. Because everyone can see the elephants. And, 
if you've ever felt frustrated uh, or, you know, you know how someone is like pointing to the horizon, you go, you see that out there? And you're looking as hard as you can. You can't see what they're seeing. Or they're trying to explain something to you, and you can't understand what they're trying to, to explain, and it's, it frustrates you. And, and you begin to wonder, is there something wrong with me? Or, uh, you know, why can't I see? Why can't I understand? And if you've ever felt that frustration, then, then you understand. You have a sense of the frustration of what's happening in the hearts and minds of the disciples in Mark chapter 9. Fred, get rid of the picture. This is going to be killing people the whole sermon, right? I'll, I'll email it to you. You can steer at the computer screen. It works. It actually happens. Um, the disciples are frustrated. They're, 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 they can't see what Jesus is talking about. Let me get you caught up in Mark chapter 8. Jesus has been teaching. He's been healing. He's been going throughout the land of Israel. And uh, he asked this question one day to his disciples. Who do the people say that I am? And you know, the, the disciples give their answers. And then he asked the question to his followers, his, his friends, the disciples, who do you say that I am? And if you remember, Peter has this response where he says, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus sort of explodes in this jubilation of, that's right, Peter. And flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. This is a spiritual revelation that Peter has had. And Jesus is pretty excited, and he says to Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. And, and Peter's feeling pretty good. And if, if you know anything about Peter, he has these really high moments that don't last very long. Because shortly after, Jesus begins shifting his teaching. He begins shifting his teaching to talk about suffering and the cross. And the disciples cannot see it. They don't understand what suffering and the Messiah have in common. And so that's why in, in, in Mark 8, Peter pulls Jesus to the side of the road and says, hey, that's enough talking about suffering. You're freaking us out a little bit. It doesn't say that in the Bible. It's my paraphrase. Because it, it doesn't fit their construct of what they've been taught. You see, they've been taught that when the Davidic reign, the, the glory days, the good old days are revived again in Israel and all the oppressors are thrown off, they've been taught a certain way that this will happen. Elijah will come, the prophet. He will anoint the Messiah. The Messiah will then free Israel of all the pain of oppression. And the good old days, the glory days, the sequel to David's Davidic, this Davidic reign, the glory days will be instated in, in, in and, and it'll, be, it'll be great times. And suffering doesn't fit anywhere in that. In fact, uh, uh, Justin Martyr, in a second century uh, a piece of literature, he, he captures this in, an, in some ap apologetic literature. He says, the Messiah, if he has been born and exists anywhere, is unknown and does not even know himself and has no power until Elijah comes to anoint him and make him known to all. That was the common thought of the day. So when Jesus starts talking about dying and being crucified... The disciples, kind of like that stereogram, they're, they're, they're trying to cross their eyes just right. They're, they're trying to see it, but it doesn't make sense. They can't reconcile suffering with following Jesus. And can we just simply say that we struggle with that very thing today? We don't know how to reconcile our pain and our suffering with following Christ we don't know how they go together. In fact, some are teaching they don't go together. Uh, I'll, th I'll throw a quote up here from an American pastor. I left the name off because I don't want that to just to be a distraction to you. 
It's not Susan Garlinger. It's not Jen Roth. It's not even Brian Candelo. But it is an American pastor. He, he said, I, I preach that anybody can improve their lives. I think God wants us to be happy. To me, you need to have money to pay your bills. I think God wants us to send our kids to college. I think he wants us to be a blessing to other people. If you're not healthy, wealthy, and emotionally happy, it's because your faith is too weak. You have not laid claim to your inheritance because suffering is never God's will. Can you hear it? I'm looking. I'm trying to reconcile this. I just can't see it. And by the way, this gospel, the gospel of Mark, is being written to a church in Rome that is entering into intense persecution under Emperor Nero. This is an incredibly relevant passage of scripture for this young church. They are, they are experiencing intense suffering and they're trying to reconcile their pain with their Messiah. And so Mark shares his story. So here's what I want to do. I want to read the story. I want to explain it briefly. I want to take us to, from, from, from 33 AD to March you know, 2014 here in, at Salem. I want to bridge the gap and talk about how we can also reconcile with our own suffering, how we do it in our horizontal relationships in community, and the impact it can have when it's done right. And, and we'll, I'll show some of the consequences of when it's not done well in our relationship with God and how suffering and the Christian life do go, to, go together. And we need to make room for it. So, Mark 9, uh, I'm going to read beginning in verse 2. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's a Bible looks like this one. It's in the pew rack in front of you. Go to page 1589. You'll find the story. Bottom right corner, you'll see a big 9. Um, and I'm just in that little uh, paragraph. It'll, it'll say this, the transfiguration. That's where I'm starting to read. Uh, the transfiguration. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said this because he didn't really know what else to say, for they were all terrified. Don't you like, love it how honest the Bible is? <laughs> then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus with them. As they went back down the mountain, he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept it to themselves, but they often asked each other what he meant by rising from the dead. Then they asked him, why do the teachers of religious law insist that Elijah must return before the Messiah comes? Can you hear the, 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 the questioning here? Well, we've been taught this. Jesus responded, Elijah is indeed coming first to get everything ready. Yet why do the scriptures say that the Son of Man must suffer greatly and be treated with utter contempt? He's probably referring to Isaiah chapter 53. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they chose to abuse him just as the scriptures predicted. Now, to the Western mind, we read a story like this and we could trample, we could just trample right past some important details. You know, it's kind of like if you if you were if you didn't know what you were doing and you walked onto a crime scene, you might pass by little, little 
breadcrumbs, so to speak, that would give hints at what really happened here. And this, this story is full of symbolism and parallelism. And to the Jewish mind, right from the very beginning, they would have like, okay, this, this triggers a memory for me. Can you think of any other mountaintop experience where there was a cloud and there was a voice coming from the cloud, from the old, Mount Sinai, right? So actually in, in Mark 9, verse 2, that first phrase, six days later, to the Jewish mind, they went, aha, that's a clue. Because that's a reference to Exodus chapter 24. I just wanted, I'm just going to chart some of these, these parallels up here on the screen. And I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but just to show you what's happening here. You've got Mount Sinai, Mount of, Mount of Transfiguration. You've got Moses waiting six days on, on the Sinai thing. And, you, and you've got Jesus waiting six days before he goes up the mountain with his disciples. You've got clouds on both, both mountains. You've got voices from the cloud on both mountains. You've got parallel stuff going on here. These are clues. The second thing we get is that we get Moses and Elijah. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, the reason is because Moses represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets. These are your two main guys from the, from, the, from the Old Testament. And Moses, with the law, he's reminding people of God's expectations. With Elijah, in the prophetic role, you have reminding people to obey God. And both guys had a unique departure. And Jesus is going to have a unique departure. And what we have here, yes, we have Jesus being glorified, but it is not the, the, the ushering in of the glory days, which, you know, that's why Peter wants to set up the tents. It's a connection to a Jewish festival, and, he, you know, he doesn't understand that you got to go the way of the cross before you get to the resurrected life. But the baton is being passed here on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now Jesus... He will be the one to remind people of God's expectations. And, and Jesus will be the one, through the, through the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, will remind people to obey God. The baton is being passed. So that, that's the symbolism here. And then you've got, uh, you've got Elijah and, and John the Baptist. The scriptures tell us that, that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. So they have parallel lives. Both lived in the wilderness. Both lived under a weak king. For Elijah, it was Ahab. For John the Baptist, it was Herod. Both were persecuted by a manipulative queen. you got Jezebel. This is the Jezebel story with Elijah. And you've got Herodias. If you remember the Herodias story, that John the Baptist is in prison. And, uh, and, and this, this daughter dances. And she's offered up to half the kingdom. And Herodias sort of plays, kind of whispers in the daughter's ear and says, Ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And John is beheaded. Now Jesus, what he's saying is, look... Elijah did come, and he was abused. Elijah suffered. So if Elijah suffered, who is my forerunner, why would you not think that I'm not going to suffer? I will suffer too. In fact, Jesus, this whole thing about, you know, don't tell anyone about this experience on the mountain, it's not because Peter, James, and John get the secrets. There is a unique relationship there. But what is happening here is Jesus is saying the resurrection, the empty tomb, that experience is a precondition to understand what happened on the mountain. So it's not like some little inside, like, you know, circle of trust thing. It's, it's a, you can't understand the Mount of Transfiguration until after the resurrection, until after the sufferings of Christ, until, the, the, until death has died. And, and with all that, what is going on here? Jesus, when Jesus told Peter that he was going to suffer and Peter couldn't buy it, on the Mount of Transfiguration, you have the 
father speaking now to Peter. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Peter, James, John, listen to him. And what the father, what the son, what the spirit is saying is suffering precedes glory. Humiliation precedes honor. Think through the ears and the eyes of this young church in Rome that's being persecuted. Guys, hang in there. Don't throw in the towel here. Suffering precedes glory. Humiliation precedes honor. Stay true to following Christ. You can reconcile your suffering with following Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself said, in this world you will have trouble. Jesus himself, the writer of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. We, as Christ followers, need to understand that we are not immune from suffering. Yet, we struggle with it. Now, that's just a really big picture of what's going on with the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is trying to, to get them to see. He's, he's got the book. He's holding it up close. He's telling cross your eyes. You can see this suffering precedes glory. I'm going to go the way of the cross, and they still don't get it. And we still struggle to get it. So let me just help us with this and bridge the gap from 33 AD. Let's go March 2014 in Salem, Oregon. And I'm going to bridge the gap with a quote from the famous theologian Stephen Colbert. All right, put it up here. Uh, most of you know he's not, he's not a theologian. He's a, he's a comedian. Colbert is being interviewed by Rolling Stone magazine. And he's being asked about his suffering and pain in his own life. Colbert lost his dad and two brothers in a plane crash. And, and he's asked the question in this interview, what are you most thankful for? Listen to his response. Not to get deep here, but the most valuable thing I can think of is to be grateful for suffering. It is a sublime feeling and completely inexplicable and illogical. But no one doesn't suffer. Unless you're an English teacher listening to this, right? No one doesn't suffer. So the degree to which you can be aware of your own humanity is the degree to which you can accept with open eyes your own suffering. To be grateful for suffering is to be grateful for your humanity. Because what else are we going to do? Say, no thanks? It's there. Smile and accept, said Mother Teresa. And she was talking to people who had it rough. Here's what Colbert is saying. If you're human, you will suffer. And if you will learn how to embrace your loss, he experienced significant loss. If you can learn how to embrace your pain, to embrace your loss, your discouragement, your disappointment, your confusion, something inexplicable happens, illogical happens. Something beautiful that happens. A, a real theologian, a German theologian who visited the Western Church here in the, in the U.S., when asked what he observed in the, in the, uh, in the Western Church, Helmut Thielke um, said these words. He said, they have an inadequate view of suffering. We don't know how to reconcile our pain, our hurt, with being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so what we do is we minimize it. And we... We just sort of put it over to a corner. And there are inherent consequences to that. 
And let me just speak to the ones that involve community. In our relationships with each other, our, our in, the consequence to our inability to embrace our own suffering, here, here's, here's the consequence. The first one is we don't know how to embrace our own pain. When we experience loss, when we lose our job, when we get that diagnosis, when, when the son goes wayward or we have to bury a daughter, we don't, we don't know what to do with that loss or that pain. In some cultures, they're actually prescribed days of mourning. There's one tribe in China, seven weeks, 49 days of weeping. That's just part of culture. That's how you, they know how to embrace their pain. What we do is, you know, we, we have a funeral service and, and, and we want to have something good happen. And so, you know, why not an altar call? And I'm not against altar calls at funerals. But I think sometimes, what, the question is, what does that tell us about our inability to embrace pain? We want something good. We want a reason why this was worth it. We don't know how to embrace our pain. And the second consequence is, is because we don't know how to embrace our own pain, we can't enter into the pain of others. So this is why we say ridiculous things to people. I mean, last night, 5 o'clock service, there's a guy here, his wife of 72 years passes away. Married for 72 years. What do you say to someone? Who's just buried a spouse of 72 years? You don't say anything. You weep with them. But we, we, don't, we just don't know how to do that. Because we can't embrace our own pain, we can't embrace the pain of others. And, and that's really where community can go very deep. I, I want to show you a quick little video. It, it's a video, it's an animated video. Um, it kind of speaks to this very topic. The, the voice behind the video is the voice of Brene Brown. And, and Brown's done a lot of study on, on suffering and vulnerability. And uh, it, it's, it's recorded, and you'll, you'll hear some people responding in the background. Don't let that, dis that dis distract you. But just listen, because I think this video paints the picture of what I'm trying to say about our inability to embrace each other's pain. So what is empathy? And why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection, sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's a, it, very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, climb down. I know what it's like down here. And you're not alone. Sympathy is... Ooh, it's bad, uh-huh. Uh, no, you want a sandwich? Um, empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. 
I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. At least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. (laughs) John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. Are you tracking what Brian is saying? We, we, there's something in us that wants to fix. There's something in us that wants to minimize. It's really dangerous. Because it keeps us from embracing the kind of community that Christ has called us to. We have great moments. We have the mountaintop moments, but we also have the valley, the shadow death moments. And we don't know how to, we don't know how to deal with those dark days because we can't embrace our pain and we don't know how to embrace the pain of others. Third consequence is simply this. It, it leads to this continuous seeking of someone to blame. Think for a moment of this whole tragedy with the Malaysian Airlines flight. And we're looking for this plane. And I was just reading an article this morning in the BBC where... Um, the families are demanding that the, the Malaysian government apologize for lies. And in today's article, it said, hand over the murderer. In our ability to try and uh, to reconcile suffering with our, our lives, what we want to know is why this is happening. And that, I'm not saying it's a bad thing to ask. It's not wrong to ask why. But if our motive is... I want to find out who caused this, who caused this pain, who, who initiated this suffering in my life, and I want them to suffer. And when you go down that path, you go down a very dangerous path. So the consequences in our human relationships with each other of an inadequate view of suffering is we can't embrace our pain, we don't know how to embrace pain in our community, or suffering in our communities, and we look to blame people for our suffering. And then in our vertical relationship with the Father, this inadequate view of suffering also impairs us. But listen to what Rohr says. Richard Rohr says that if you're lucky, let me get that, if you're lucky, God will lead you to a situation you cannot control, you cannot fix, or you cannot even understand. At that point, true spiritual formation begins. When you get to the place where you are completely out of control and you have to be dependent, completely dependent, that's where true spiritual formation begins. That's where God begins to shape. That's where he begins to mold. And Rohr actually actually says everything before that was just preparation. And what happens is, in suffering, we hear the whispers of Job's friends. You screwed up. You messed up. You sinned. That's why this is happening. And you know, with suffering, if you look through, through suffering in the Bible, yes, sometimes our suffering, our misery is self-inflicted. I mean, look at Adam. Look at Jonah. It, sometimes it is. Sometimes it's inflicted, the pain is inflicted by others who hurt us. Sometimes pain and suffering comes because life is hard. 
Sometimes pain and suffering comes because we get sick and we die. Sometimes pain and suffering comes because there is an enemy who loves to steal, kill, and destroy. And a lot of times we don't know which one it is. But what we hear is, I messed up. I must have done something wrong and God is rejecting me. Because somehow we haven't seen how suffering and being a Christ follower can go together. And Jesus is holding it up for his disciples. The Father is even intervening, saying, listen to him. Look, the way to the empty tomb, the way to the resurrected life is through the way of the cross. And it's going to be painful at times. Let me just wrap up with just a few summary statements. And the first one is this. When disasters come, God's not on trial, we are. Think about the mudslide north of Seattle. Sometimes in situations like this, we may say, how could God, why would God let, if there's a God, I mean, we hear these things, and again, I understand what is being said, but the reality is, is oftentimes suffering reveals what's really going on in our hearts. And I'm going to be harsh by that, but pay attention to your response in trials. Second thing I would say is, is this, we live by promises, not by explanations. Sometimes we do get the answer to the question why. Many of the times it just remains a mystery. And in faith, we, we walk by faith, not by sight. I don't mean to be cliche about this. I'm just saying we're not going to get every question answered. Not this side of the cross. Now, one day, we will see him as he is. One day. I mean, just don't you think Jesus has just a little bit more sense of justice than we do? The last thing I would say is this. Often our greatest growth in this, is in the wilderness of suffering. I find that when there's pain and suffering, that's when I'm praying the most. I, I just hate to confess it. I find that when it's in the wilderness, that's, that's when I tend to lean in a little bit more. I, in my own personal disciplines, I'm inflicting a personal discipline of going into the wilderness by myself, saying I'm choosing like things like solitude. I'm choosing things that are painful so that I can go there because that's where growth takes place. And you can too. In fact, there is this idea in the, in the mind of ancient Israel that the glory days were the days when David reigned. But in the prophetic tradition, the glory days were not when David reigned. The glory days were the wilderness days. That's when the people were most dependent. And for the church in Rome who's receiving this letter, what Mark is saying is, look, you guys are in a difficult, difficult time. And yes, you're suffering, but suffering precedes glory. Embrace each other's suffering. Stay together in this. Don't throw in the towel. Yes, you're being humiliated, but there's honor coming one day. Stick with Christ. And friends, can I say to you the same? If you're in pain and you're in suffering today, the wilderness is not God's rejection. It could be something completely the opposite. Hosea chapter 2, verse 14, captures the prophetic tradition. Therefore, I will now allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. You've got to get this. We hear the voice, the whisper of Job's friends that say, you screwed up, you sinned, that's why this is happening. But what, what the prophetic tradition is saying to us is quite the opposite. Instead of rejection and abandonment, what the prophetic tradition is saying, it's romance. And could it be 
that you've embraced shame and guilt when the exact opposite is happening. It's God whispering, I love you so much. I just want you to come with me and be dependent. I got things I want to show you. I want things I want to say to you. And you can only hear them in the wilderness. Suffering precedes glory. Humiliation precedes honor. And in our periods of suffering and humiliation and disappointment and pain, we need each other. So we need to learn how to embrace our own pain so we can embrace the pain of others. And we need to see the wilderness as God's romance. Now some of you are thinking, well, that's one heck of a way to romance. And it is. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. The team is going to sing a song over us. Many of you are in pain. And you just need to receive these words being sung over you. You might even want to put your hands out, you know, palms up, and just receive these words as a balm, a healing balm in your time of pain. Would you just let your heart rest on the Savior?